Welcome to our podcast series, Pazina Perspectives. I'm Valerie Arnold, co-head of North American Distribution at Pazina Investment Management. We do one thing at Pazina, value investing. We are dedicated to our value philosophy through thick and thin. It is times like the crisis we are experiencing today when others may give up. We believe the strong support we continue to receive from our clients and partners is because of our transparency and, va and disciplined value philosophy. We are very pleased that in the first quarter, we continue to have positive net flows. The flows came from across our client base. Today, we are here to discuss the investment opportunities and outlook we are seeing in our non-US portfolios. I have with me our co-CIO, John Getz, and our international and EM portfolio manager, Allison Fish, both members of our investment team for more than 18 years. John, I was hoping you could kick it off, but before we talk about the portfolios, can you walk us through how the investment process is working in this environment and how the research team is doing? Yeah, Valerie, um, one of the things we were fortunate uh, on, on the IT side that we had already been preparing for a remote working environment. And, and so when, when we got uh, the isolation order and we had to close our office in, in Manhattan, uh, we were ready to go. And basically uh, our research team from day one working from home was uh, totally prepared uh, to get going. I mean, one, one of the benefits, Valerie, of, of the team is we've been working together uh, for a long time. Half the team uh, went through the GFC together. Uh, so we're not, this isn't our first crisis investment environment as a team. Uh, we're able to help the younger, less experienced team understand what we're looking for uh, in thinking through these very uh, dramatic environments. So, so far, so good. Uh, one of the sidebar uh, things that surprised me actually was the research uh, actually has become more intense. In other words, we're spending more hours on research, more hours in research uh, review together. Part of it is the dramatic nature of the opportunities today and the excitement we have uh, as a team. It's also that our video technology and ability to access management teams has, has about doubled. I would say, from before the, the crisis. So it's a very intense period, but exciting period for those of us on the team. That's really impressive. It's definitely not something you would um, expect. Um, turning directions, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, analyzing the current portfolios and how they're impacted in this environment. Um, how are you making sure that our portfolio companies can survive a, a prolonged downturn? Allison. Well, we're really going company by company, and it's it's sort of a two-pronged analysis because on the one hand, we're going through our own models and assuming you know a near shutdown in some cases um, for a number of months and then a very, very slow recovery and seeing through our own analysis what that looks like, how the liquidity rolls, what's the shape of the balance sheet, what are the maturities in the near term that may be affected, what covenants are there um, potentially on the debt, and sort of coming up with our own analysis on, on how this is likely to unfold. And then the other prong, um, as John mentioned, we've had a lot of access to management teams during this period. And so that other prong is then getting on the phone or on video with them or whatever, um, and, and testing that case with them, making sure that the way that we see this unfold flips with what they're seeing. We wanna understand their perspective of what bad looks like. You know, We know our own, base case and bear case, we want to know what theirs is. We want to know if they're prepared for something that looks even worse than that. 
Um, and we want to make sure that we really understand the dynamics of, of how the cash flows are likely to evolve in this particular period, because it doesn't look like previous periods. You know, when you have sort of the halt to activity that we're seeing over the last couple of months, that's a lot different than, than some of the slowdowns that we've lived through before. So we're really making sure that we completely understand how this is going to look and really recalibrating what the true downside is in some of these investments. And the reality is for most of the companies that we own, looks pretty good. And so we're, we're broadly seeing this as a great opportunity to buy cyclical businesses that certainly will feel pain um, at valuations we've never seen before um, and that, that we believe can, can see through this period without significant impairment uh, to our equity stakes into the business. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, that Allison's getting at there, Valerie, is it's, it's interesting. I've always, I've always told people that uh, no matter what we're looking at, there's usually some kind of problem, right? Because we're in deep value and we run this screening tool. Uh, and so we kind of major in downside. Uh, we talk about downside protection a lot. Uh, so yes, to Allison's point, the downside of a complete shutdown of your business for, for six months is a little more dramatic than some downsides we've dealt with in the past. But we're used to this dialogue, I call it, you know, dealing in the valley or, or running into a ditch and, and figuring out how you're going to get to the other side of it. Uh, and, and, and the communication with management, uh, as we were just saying, because we're used to this, because we're comfortable, our communication with management is really good through this. We know they don't know when COVID's going to end, but what we need to do is understand the interaction of all the key variables in the business. I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I think that this is where our, our process really from the inception of each investment becomes so valuable because we try to interact with and meet the companies when we're doing our initial research. It's not as if when we're reaching out to them today, it's the first time they're hearing from us, right? It's, a, it's an ongoing dialogue that we've already established through these investments. And so it, it's easy to sort of pick up where that, where that left off and we have the relationships to do it. Um, which I think is really critical. Thanks, Allison and John. John, how do you compare this crisis to previous crises? Many of our clients are asking, is this the next Great Depression? Well, I can either, uh, I can answer the first, that last question first with a simple answer. We're either entering another Great Depression or we're not. Uh, I was trying to be funny. But, uh, you know, the, the reality uh, is that uh, we have to be ready for a very severe downturn. And we'll talk more about the specific situations uh, that we're looking at. But I would say there's some, some big obvious uh, differences in terms of looking at industries. Uh, one is that in the GFC, uh, the global financial crisis, we know it hit the financial sector hard. Uh, the hit to the financial sector this time is going to be completely different. And I can talk a little bit more about that that later. So we've been through crises before. This one definitely has a different flavor. Never more, not, never in, in our past history, in our 25 years of working, have we dealt with businesses being completely shut down uh, for a period of time. You know, you do sensitivities minus 20% on revenue or something. This is like minus 100% on revenue for, for some period of time. So I think we have to take this event, you know, incredibly uh, seriously. Now, now on, on how is this going to end, and this is the Great Depression, I think the good news is it's a virus, so it will end. That, that's one way of thinking about the exogenous variable, the virus. 
how we deal with the virus over the next year or so, and then how the economy returns. That's the mystery. You know, are we going to stay in lockdown longer? Is it going to be a second wave? Uh, there's a lot of issues that are not knowable in this investment case. That's why it's a little different than the GFC or it was a crisis in deep value. The dot com was, I know it sounds weird, but it was a crisis uh, for those of us in the value uh, space where we got way behind uh, the market benchmarks during, during that period of time. This is just a different animal in the sense of how it might shut down some businesses. Allison, focusing a little bit more now on emerging markets, why do you think emerging markets have performed better um, during this crisis? Why hasn't EM value done a bit better? So when you look across the emerging space, you do have a range in terms of performance of companies as well as countries. But if you look at the biggest countries within emerging markets, China, followed by Korea, Taiwan, you know, some of these bigger countries have have actually been managing quite well through the virus. You know, China's got a little bit of that first in, first out dynamic. We already know what bad looks like in China because they shut down the country, you know, several months ahead of, ahead of the, the Western world. And so I think it's a little bit knowing what bad looks like already, um, coupled with some of these countries, you know, Korea in particular, handling the crisis um, significantly better than some of the developed market names where, where we're, we're more concerned um, on a country level, I should say. In terms of EM value, you know, why hasn't it done better? It hasn't done better for the same reason that value everywhere ha hasn't been doing well. And that's that value tends to underperform when we're moving into the uncertainty, right? So we're in this period now where nobody knows anything and we're all sort of grasping at each data point to try to understand what direction the world is going. And, you know, a lot of this has been, can be illustrated by the levels of, of stock price volatility that we're seeing today, you know, that have only really been rivaled by the Great Depression, right? So, so huge period of uncertainty. And in these types of moments, when we're fearful, we don't know what's happening, we fear we're going into a deep recession, even a depression, as you, as you were just discussing, this is when the cheap get cheaper and valuation spreads widen out. And everything that is cyclical or controversial or not well understood gets left for dead and people are clinging for safety to the companies that, that they feel are more stable um, earners and, and growers. And so that's the dynamic we're seeing in emerging markets. It's the dynamic we're seeing everywhere in the world. And honestly, you know, to some degree, that's the dynamic that you have seen in every value cycle. Now, when does it turn? That's, that's the next question that people ask over and over again. And, and the reality is, is that it's impossible to call when the turn happens, but generally it is not when you see a turn in the economic data for the positive. You know, usually the turn in terms of the value cycle will happen once we think we've seen the worst of the bad, because that's when the uninvestable becomes too cheap to ignore. Now, is that how it will evolve this time? Hard to say, um, but that is the pattern we've seen in the past. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, this uncertainty is at exceptional levels, as Allison was saying. Uh, I had a, another investment committee member ask me, say, hey, I thought given the spreads were so wide before this, that maybe value would start working, you know, in the next recession. And, and I have to admit, I had closet hopes that, that because the spreads uh, for deep value were already so wide, that people had unnecessary fear uh, embedded in the valuation before this started. But this level of uncertainty, again, 
the nature of completely shutting down businesses or, or, or parts of an economy for, for periods of time. I just think it has created a whole new level of uncertainty that people are uncomfortable with. And the flight to safety has reached a level now that we've never, never seen uh, in my investment lifetime and I've been around for a while. Allison, can you talk a bit about country risk and where our exposure is in our emerging markets portfolios? Sure. You know, just as we're going sort of company by company and analyzing the effects of this, it's safe to say that on the company level, the businesses that are more likely to make it through this period of pain on a secure footing are those that started out on relatively secure footing. Um, when you look globally, the same is true at a country level. So those countries that are relatively secure are much more likely to be able to see their businesses through the pain than those that were on shaky footing to begin with, right? Because they just don't have the firepower to help support their businesses. So with that sort of in mind, you know, we feel relatively good about our country exposure within the portfolio. Our largest exposure is to China, though we're pretty significantly underweight the index um, for a number of reasons that, that we can get into. Um, and our next biggest exposure is to Korea, which is a significant overweight um, to the index. And again, you know, that's one of the countries that seems to have been handling the crisis quite well. And in fact, three different companies that we own within Korea are using the current pain in their stock prices to buy back shares, which is, I think, a real testament to how secure they feel and their ability to see through this, through this period. Um, switching gears a bit, let's talk about energy. John, the oil price has collapsed to levels never thought possible. How is it possible for oil prices to fluctuate so much? And what does this mean for our portfolios? Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, when you think about uh, energy, uh, it's really almost Murphy's Law, right? Right now, what can go wrong has gone wrong. Uh, clearly, the coincidence of the coronavirus shock to the demand side, again, this shock, to demand that things that we haven't seen before in terms of the level amount of demand that's stripped when everyone stops driving their cars overnight, basically. Uh, that's the shock on the demand side. But the shock on the supply side is actually bigger if you really back up uh, in this oil crisis because uh, Saudi Arabia deciding to pick early this year as a time to prove to the other OPEC producers that they have a lower cost of oil and they need to teach their uh, co-conspirators a lesson uh, by, by opening the spigots and fighting with Russia. That's, that's just, you know, Murphy's law. So now we have a demand shock and a supply shock, the supply shock being too much supply coming out from Saudi Arabia uh, opening the spigots just when the demand was uh, imploding. Russia, on the other hand, interestingly, because we own a couple of Russian companies uh, in the oil industry, is saying, well, game on you know, for, for a moment here. Now, I, I know just because actually worked in the oil industry at one point uh, of my life that this isn't the first time OPEC has fallen apart multiple times. People don't remember this, but OPEC fell apart almost completely in the mid 80s. Uh, and that resulted in the oil price getting down to single digits. Uh, OPEC has fallen apart again uh, during moments where Saudi Arabia was the only discipline in town, so to speak, as they kept cutting their, their production more and more to make the oil markets balanced. So here we have a shock on the demand side, shock on the supply side, so severe that 
those of you that were paying attention to futures market actually had the May futures contract close with the negative oil price. Now it's not actually true that you can order oil and have someone pay for you, uh, you know, to take it. Uh, it. It's not really that. And, and what it is instead is some people in the contract uh, for May saying, I don't want to take delivery. I'll pay someone to take my contract because I don't even know how to get delivery. And by the way, storage is filling up for May. So I don't even know if I could contract for a tank, even if I did take this physical delivery for the first time in my life, because I only trade financial futures. So, so you have to understand the financial buyers in this never touch a barrel of oil. They, they don't even contract for storage. They just roll a May contract into an April contract. I mean, a May contract into a June contract, et cetera. So, so there's this weird thing in financial markets. I think you should always look out a month or two to say, well, what is the price of oil that impacts an oil company or impacts a refinery, the big buyer of the oil? So think of the oil collapsing into the 20s. Yes, that's still a stinking nightmare because no one was planning on the oil being in, in $20 range. This is now, Valerie, I think this raises a really important point of how we evaluate everything. You have to be ready for the negative outcome. What does that mean? What it means is we're very focused on not ending up buying the most levered, the most highly geared, uh, most marginal producer in any industry or business. We're looking for strong competitors, strong positions, strong franchises in every business we look at. Now, granted, it's going to have a problem, like the current oil price is really low, or maybe they made a management mistake, or, or maybe their ESG uh, and governance needs to be improved. You know, there's always an issue that, that will impair a stock, because how else would a stock be cheap? But what we're looking for is an underlying franchise that is positioned well competitively. Uh, so we can talk a little bit more about why Russian oil companies are well positioned, but I just want to uh, point out here that the oil price is temporarily incredibly low. The big casualties would be U.S. shale, if you haven't read about this. The U.S. shale producers in a low oil price environment will be piling up uh, a lot of problems uh, and, and we need to watch out for those problems and how they work through the food chain. Uh, so what we're looking for is something where the stock price is half of what it was. Usually, I mean, look at energy portfolios, stocks are down way more than 50%, most of them. We have to pick out the gems that actually are reflecting the pain, but might even be better positioned competitively after the crisis. I always like to say, Buy something where if things get worse before they get better, you get a little grin on your face because you know it's causing some other players more pain than the company you own. John, can you tell us a little bit more specifically how this, the oil crisis, is impacting our, our energy holdings in developed markets? Yeah. In, in developed markets, it's a little bit different than, than emerging markets. So I'll start with developed and then we'll cross over to, to emerging. Um, in developed markets, uh, we had begun uh, about a year ago uh, making some investments in the oil service industry, partly because we had these positions in big integrated oil companies post the oil price collapse of 2014, uh, when oil price fell from the $100 level all the way into the 30s uh, back in 14. That created a bunch of dislocations. But we were buying the integrateds because we knew that they had spent a lot of money in the boom and there's gonna be a lot of production growth, a lot of cash flow, and they would start cutting their expenses. 
Now, what are the expenses of a major oil company? The oil service company. They're the ones that provide the services to the major oil companies. So we stayed away from oil service up until uh, a year or so ago, mainly because we wanted that spending to come down a lot because it had been so far above trend. Uh, but after the spending had been reduced by about 50% uh, for some extended period, we started to see that oil supply, and I'm talking about the supply side here, from the free world, I'm not talking about Saudi Arabia, but from the free world, was going to start being reduced because we weren't investing enough to actually maintain oil production. I'm not even talking about growing oil production. Just to maintain what you have was starting to come off. Reserves, well, reserves in the free world have declined substantially since uh, 2014. So we took a look at some of the oil service companies thinking their stock prices had fallen more than 50%, et cetera, and uh, found some interesting leaders, global leaders there. Uh, I could name some companies like Halliburton and NOV. But then when this uh, demand shock hit, of course, people say, oh, forget oil service. Uh, you've heard the expression, oil service companies are just oil beta, meaning they just trade with the oil price. So when you see a $5 oil price or worse, a minus $15 uh, oil price, you know those stocks are getting slammed. So those stocks have fallen another 50%. So think of these stocks being down 80 to 90% from their highs uh, in 2014. And we're talking 80, 90%. Now what's our job? Go in there, pick out the ones that Allison was alluding to, where you understand what downside looks like. You've, you've looked at the liquidity, et cetera, and you pick out the surviving leaders uh, in this situation. And that, that's what we think we've done in the developed world. Emerging market world, a little bit different. Not a lot of leading oil, global oil service companies there uh, in emerging markets. There are a couple, but, but for the most part, it's going into what I'll call the asset owner uh, portfolios like the Russian oil companies where we found the best deals. Yeah, what's particularly exciting about the Russian oil companies that we own is they have these extremely low cost bases and as the Russian ruble is somewhat correlated with oil price, their costs are getting lower in this environment. So they're becoming even more competitive. So that's great from an operational standpoint. In addition, the taxation regime in Russia um, is such that they get a lot of relief as the oil price falls and actually don't benefit that much from a higher oil price, right? So sort of, you know, when you're speaking about oil beta, you know, these are relatively low oil price beta stocks, um, despite the fact that they are oil producers. And then, you know, sort of the third leg of that stool is the balance sheets. You know, Luke Oil, net cash company. You know, we got off the phone with Rosneft yesterday, talked through some very bearish scenarios in which they, they believe they'll still remain um, free cash flow positive. So, you know, all of this is really, really positive when you think about seeing through this period of pain. Yeah, just jump just to make sure we all connect the dots there uh, for the listeners. The truth is, the reason the SPAT got revved up between Saudi and Russia is they're both low-cost producers. And in a way, they're saying, game on, someone else has to, has to give up before we do. And, and obvious target of that, unfortunately for the United States and its energy independence issue, is the U.S. shale. That's, that's the primary uh, slam uh, on this oil crisis. 
Changing directions a bit, John, can you tell us more about the current environment and its impact on our financial holdings? Is this the next GFC? How do you compare to that time? Wow. Uh, very, very different, Valerie. You, you hit the nail on the head with that question. Uh, let's just walk through the GFC first. Uh, what happened was uh, home prices in North America, we caused a global crisis, by the way, from the United States. Let's just get that clear. Uh, our home prices were very inflated, about 30% according to our estimates. And as they began to collapse, the banking system, which had unfortunately loosened the limits on lending to housing, believing it was the safest loan you could make, had allowed things like zero money down mortgages. But it's worse than that. I think if we had had zero money down mortgages, even that wouldn't have created a crisis. It's that we packaged them up in these derivative forms where no one, they thought the risk was reduced, but how could it be true? And many of you watched the movie Big Short, probably just tells you the whole story. But, but you know, the reality is that uh, what happened is the uncertainty of the economy showed up in the uncertainty of the left side of the balance sheet in financial institutions all over the world. What was that uncertainty, unknowable? What was the value of these mark-to-market -mark derivatives on the left side of the balance sheet? CDOs, layers of CDOs. Like what happened was they, I call it blinking numbers on a screen. You should have seen the blinking. I mean, they started at 100 cents on the dollar and even AA, AAA layers blinked down to 20, 30 cents. So why did I say that? That was the uncertainty. It hit the financial system and then we had a liquidity crisis. Okay, we'll spool back to today. Today, what's happening is the governments are teaming up with the financial system to extend credit, not in a liquidity crisis, but in the ordinary depression, recession type mental model where we need to use the banking system to make sure that we have liquidity. And you've seen this, they're, they're guaranteeing liquidity into the banking system from governments all around the world. China, you know, Allison already said it, China is the first, first uh, path through this. Interestingly enough, the forbearance plan, right? They, we, we're calling it forbearance now too. The forbearance of the companies that are suffering or the consumers that are suffering in this crisis means not trying to collect a loan when someone can't pay. Now, there's a little bit of a kick the can down the road aspect of that, but it's a completely different animal than the seizure of the liquidity in the GFC. Allison, do you have anything to add about how the current environment is impacting our financial holdings and emerging markets? What's interesting about emerging markets is really their diversity. So we have a large uh, portion of financials in the portfolio. It's, it's our largest weight on a sector basis, uh, which is also true in our international portfolio. But within emerging markets, the opportunity is extremely diverse across geography. And as we discussed earlier, we are seeing geographic difference in terms of the effects of this virus and the response to it. You know, generally across the globe, we're seeing banks be supportive of lenders and governments trying to be supportive of banks, um, though those responses have varied somewhat. Let's change, change directions a bit and talk about specific holdings in the portfolios. Allison, can you dig into a few compelling positions um, in our portfolios today? Sure, sure. You know, as I mentioned, we've really been undergoing this exercise company by company of looking at what's cheap 
uh, because it's in pain, so, so cyclical businesses, and which ones can really comfortably see through a long period of pain. And so this has highlighted a number of holdings in the portfolio, both some new names, as well as the opportunity to increase our exposures to some other ones. The one company uh, that comes to mind right away, speaking of Korea, is POSCO, the Korean steel maker. So this is a world-class producer, um, you know, really just one of a handful of companies that, that can do certain things uh, in steel. But that said, in the current environment, there's sure to be a lot of pain. You know, steel prices are very low, demand is low, their end market is significant, um, significantly tilted towards autos and, and shipmaking. So all of this is pain, pain, pain. But when we look at the balance sheet um, and the ability of this company to see through the crisis, it's really quite impressive. And, and this is one of the companies um, that I alluded to earlier when I mentioned companies doing share buybacks through this crisis. So, you know, when we look at the valuation of POSCO today, it's lower or about as low as it was at the bottom of the commodity cycle, the end of 2015, but with a balance sheet that has been significantly de-risked, you know, nothing like the level of leverage that we saw at that time. So it's really been quite a, a compelling opportunity and we've increased our exposure there, um, not just in emerging markets, but in our international and global portfolios as well. Another company that we've been quite constructive on recently and have, have added to is Han Hai in the technology space. So this is the world's largest EMS player. You know, Apple is a, is a major customer of theirs and it's a Taiwanese company with most of its production within China. So early in the year, they were in complete shutdown. Um, and then actually, as we moved through the first quarter began to open up again, though you know, they haven't reached full utilization um, at the level that they normally would be seeing this, this time of year. This is a stock that sold off in all the pain, but yet we saw, we have seen already, um, it bring its operations back online. And it also has a net cash balance sheet, you know, and plenty, plenty of ability to manage through this lighter period. It's a good thing for them also that, you know, since they're creating iPhones, this is not the heavy production season, right? That's generally um, later in the year. So we think they should be able to manage through this crisis pretty well. And we're able to get the stock price at a, a very large discount versus what we would have done. You know, when we look at developed markets, the one name um, that we're particularly constructive on is Rexel in the industrial distribution space. So this is a European name, but it's got a geographic diversity of business, both in Europe as well as in the US. And actually most of the controversy around the company um, when we initiated the investment was about their business in the United States. Now, over the last several quarters, we've seen the company really on the path to normalization and turning around that business, you know, in quite a constructive way. But this event obviously throws everything up in the air. Now, what's, what's interesting about Rexel is because they have this geographic diversity and countries have been moving into this slowdown um, sort of in a step way, they saw, you know, earlier um, in March, the effect of all of this on their business in Italy and then in France, right? And now it's moving into the US. So they recently reported earnings just yesterday or the day before. Um, and looking at the numbers that they're seeing across, across their different geographies was an interesting snapshot into what bad might look like, um, what the slowdown might look like. This is another company where we've had very extensive conversations with the management team about how you manage liquidity in this environment. Rexel does have some debt. In a normal slowdown, it's also a high working capital business, so it throws off a lot of cash, right? 
But, you know, to our discussion earlier, in this type of slowdown where your branches are just closed, you can't liquidate the inventory, what does that do to the working capital? What does that mean in terms of the cash flow? So really understanding the management's view of that and how they're navigating around it has been a big part of us getting comfortable enough to want to increase our exposure here, which, which we have done. Yeah, just piling on that, you know, one of the things that we love about Rexel is not only they have the financial staying power to get through this, but once they turn their operations around in the United States, they're already uh, the leader in France, some other geographies in Europe. Now they're becoming the go-to e-commerce enabled uh, player in North America. Uh, so pretty, pretty interesting uh, share gainer probably uh, through this whole crisis. John, can you tell us some, a little bit about some positions we have passed on or why we would pass on an investment opportunity during this environment? Yeah. Uh, so, so the thread we're, we've been developing here during this podcast is that uh, you better understand what bad looks like. Allison has said it about five times. Uh, and, and then when you say, well, hold it, it's, we're in an uncertain environment. Well, okay. So what we really have to do is make sure that we're even flexible on what a bad case is that we're running through the financials. I'm not saying that uh, you know, we can ensure that there's no uh, capital impairment in our portfolios over the next three years because we don't actually have a crystal ball. But what we can do is company by company, make sure that we're not running into something where two months later, we're gonna be uh, praying that the thing turns around, otherwise we're worried about bankruptcy. So what have we eliminated? What's interesting is it's logically some heavily indebted companies. If we see a lot of debt, uh, we basically uh, know not to go there because the equity layer is too slim. So that's pretty easy to knock out a bunch of companies. Fortunately, we've only had a couple uh, companies, a few, I should say, companies in all our portfolios uh, across the world where we've decided that the debt is at an unmanageable level and we should consider uh, lifting our foot off the accelerator uh, on those. Uh, what I, but I wanted to comment on, Valerie, since we haven't seen a lot of impairment in the companies we already own, let's talk about what's going on in the market because clearly we were fortunate. We didn't own a lot of, uh, uh, air, we didn't own any airlines, we didn't own any hotel companies, we didn't own any cruise uh, ships. So, so, you know, these massively impaired uh, situations in terms of the shutdown uh, are, are, of course, coming into the first quintile in our screening tool. Uh, so far, I will say that the, the stuff that has had uh, a highly levered business model and a severe revenue hit because of COVID, I will just tell you, not a lot of that is meeting our standard for good risk reward balance. I mean, yes, you can pick uh, an emerging market airline right now and get 10 times your money if COVID quickly ends and we quickly get back to flying and we go right back to where we were in 2019. But that's not what we believe to be true. We believe getting back to where we were in 2019 uh, in the near term in many industries around the world is just not a reasonable assumption. You know, economists call this B versus U recoveries, right? We don't want to bet on a V in these highly leveraged situations. So a lot, it, we're passing on a lot with all this research we're doing. We're passing on 
things that don't improve on our portfolio from a risk reward. By that, I mean good downside protection, meeting the characteristics Allison has been talking about, and at the same time, getting that, that opportunity for a double or triple when this uh, COVID finally ends. Thanks, John. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap it up for our audience? Well, first of all, you know, I think there's many things for us to be grateful for at Pazina because uh, we've had no COVID uh, illnesses. Uh, we were working well as a team together. The team is cohesive. So much to be thankful for, uh, and, I, and I really mean that. Uh, we're also thankful for the clients that have stuck with us through this uh, nightmare. And, and as Valerie alluded at the outset, surprisingly good uh, commitment from, from our customers and, and partners uh, in, in this business. I, did, I do want to say that in the 25 years we've been doing this, uh, this is the most exceptional opportunity that we've seen. It has by far the most uncertainty, but with that, just think of uncertainty equaling value opportunity, and, and you get the idea that this is unlike anything we've had before. So from a team standpoint, we're super excited about digging through the minefield here and finding these, these gems around the world. Uh, I know it's hard for clients when they open their, their statements from the first quarter and see big negative numbers on their equity accounts. I know this is a tough period emotionally. Uh, I appreciate that. For us on the investment side, however, we can balance that with the excitement of seeing things at three or four times uh, the normal earnings power of these businesses appearing uh, in our investment portfolios. So. Bad news, uh, uncertainty, the deaths that we've had to deal with in the world today. Uh, but the good news is a, an opportunity-rich environment all around the world. And there is hope. COVID will end. Thank you, John and Allison, for joining us today. Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening into our podcast. We greatly appreciate your support of our firm. If you need any further information, please visit our website, at www.pazina.com or, or send us an email at info at